This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Open up your Bibles, uh, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Well, uh, I'd love to do this as well. He is risen. That is so good. For two decades, uh, I lived in almost two decades. My wife and I lived in California. And uh, there are advantages to living in the Bible Belt. There's extreme disadvantages as well. But there are advantages. And one of them is church folk know that line at Easter. And uh, so in California, I remember the first couple of Easter's I was there, I'd just walk up to someone, he has risen. And they'd be like... Yeah, I, I know. What are you talking about? Yeah, you know. Don't you know the line? And they didn't. So we tried to teach it. But in all the years I was there, they never did the church I led. They never did a good job. So it's great to be somewhere where everybody knows on cue to say uh, he is risen indeed. Um, before we look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, I want to tell you a story. I've told it before, but I want to tell you a story that relates to the passage that we are going to read um, this morning in just a moment. It's the story of Richard III and a famous proverb which may or may not come, have come from a story which may or not be, may be true about him, but this was in the 15th century. And uh, Richard III was going to battle, uh, he's going to battle for the kingdom and they were going to battle uh, against some guy like Henry from Richmond, the Earl of Richmond or something like this. And uh, so he was getting ready to go to battle and he sent his groom, which is uh, his helper, his assistant, um, his butler kind of guy. He, he sent his groom to prepare the horse for battle. And so the groom went down to the blacksmith and he said, uh, hey, I, I'm preparing the king's horse for battle and I need you to put uh, shoes, shoe the horse so that the horse is ready for battle. And the blacksmith said, well, this is a problem because I have shooed all of the horses for the king's army and I don't have anything ready to go. And he says, well, you must, you got to get something ready. So he takes some iron, he fashions it to the size of a shoe for the, uh, uh, for the, the horse's feet. And then he, uh, begins to nail them on, and when he gets to the fourth shoe, he is out of nails. And uh, he's short a nail, and so he says to him, look, I've got to go back, and I've got to fashion at least one more nail uh, to secure the shoe. And the groom said, well, we do not have time for that. I hear the trumpet. Uh, We're going to battle. It's going to have to do. Uh, To which he said, well, it's not going to be secure. It may not be safe. Uh, this isn't meet standards, or regulation standards. And uh, he said, no, we've got to go. And he just took off with the king's horse. And so as they got into battle, uh, Richard was riding in front of the troops. He was uh, seeking to uh, uh, lead and charge and encourage the troops. He was trying to uh, spur them on. And so he was out in the field of battle. And as he glanced over at one point, he saw the troops retreating. 
And so he decided to go full force over to that section of the battle to charge them, to urge them not to give up, not to retreat, but to engage the battle. And so as his horse is in a full sprint, or whatever the term, horse term is, he's in a full sprint over to that side of the battle, the shoe flies off the horse's foot. The horse tumbles and falls down and throws Richard into the field of battle with his troops retreating. The horse is then spooked and runs off and leaves him alone in the field of the battle. And this is where supposedly the line uh, from the Shakespeare play uh, came where he said, my horse, my horse, a kingdom for my horse. And of course he lost and lost the kingdom. And so from that story, comes the following proverb. For want of a nail, a shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, a horse was lost. For want of a horse, a rider was lost. For want of a rider, a battle was lost. For want of a battle, a kingdom was lost. And all for the want of a horseshoe nail all for the want of a horseshoe nail. Small things can have great effects. Small errors or small omissions can have tragic, devastating effects. And that's the point of the proverb and the story. And it's the exact logic that Paul uses in the chapter that we're about to read where he talks about the resurrection. He takes one misguided notion and he plays it out and he says, if you believe this, this will be the result. Beginning in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection? Of the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, and we pray that you would show us today the glory and the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And even more than that, we pray that you would show us its relevance to our lives, that we might all understand today what's at stake if there is no resurrection, and what's at stake if there is. Speak to us, Lord. We pray that as we look at this text of Scripture, you would open eyes, you would open hearts, and that you would speak to us. Lord, we grant a freedom from distraction and a concentration. We pray that you would grant that, a concentration on what you say to us 
in this passage. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you're new here, I'm going to do what we normally do, which is we read a Bible passage like I did, and we just walk through that passage line by line, try to make some application of it, and see what it has to say to us today. Um, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open up this text and just let it have its say and uh, as it calls us to faith. Well, here's the... Here's the loose nail or the missing nail on the shoe uh, from the story earlier in this passage. He says in verse 20, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, so we teach that Jesus is resurrected, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? That's the nail. Some of the people in the church are saying there is no resurrection of the dead for people. They're not questioning the resurrection of Jesus right here. What they're saying is there's no resurrection. People, people aren't resurrected someday in the future after they die. Now, there could be a couple of reasons they believed this. It could be because in this church in Corinth, they basically thought heaven was on earth. They had all these spiritual powers. They had all these spiritual gifts. And some of them taught like all of heaven has invaded earth. This is, uh, this is, what it, this is all it is. We already have uh, the presence of God, the spirit of God, the power of God now. But it's also likely that they were influenced by the, the, the culture around them and the religion around them because they were in a Greek area and this is what the Greeks taught and believed. The Greeks taught and believed that the spirit is good, but you are housed, you are trapped inside a body. And when you die, your immortal spirit lives forever, and your body just decays. And so the idea that someone, that God would resurrect a body would be offensive to them. They would say, the body is bad. Everything about the body is, is temporal. It is, it's not good. The spirit is good. Why would God want you to drag this bad old body into eternity with you? We're just, we, we, the hope of eternity is to be a disembodied spirit, just a spirit that is free. And so that's probably what some of them were saying, that, that, that uh, they were taking in Greek ideas, that, that the, the body isn't really resurrected in the future. And so that seems like an, an innocent belief. I mean, can't we, can't we just agree to disagree? Maybe the body's resurrected, maybe it's not. Hey, all I know is I'm going to live for eternity. Can't, can't we just agree to disagree? And Paul says, no, wait a minute, we can't. Because what he says is, if people aren't raised from the dead, verse 13... If there is no resurrection for us, then not even Christ has been resurrected. And so here's what Paul does in this Easter sermon. He says, let's play what if. Let's imagine that there is no resurrection of Jesus. Let's imagine that today is, well, he's going to say that today's fake. Let's imagine it didn't really happen. What's at stake? So you say people aren't resurrected. Realize if people aren't as Christians, then Jesus wasn't. Now, if Jesus wasn't, what difference does it make? And look at the logic of what he walks through. Number one, if Jesus isn't resurrected, Paul says here, our preaching and your faith are in vain. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Now, when he says our preaching, he doesn't mean my sermon's in vain, but he means the message that we teach. So if Jesus isn't resurrected, this message that you believe and your faith is in vain. The word vain means it's useless. It's empty. It's empty. There's nothing to it. It's like if you got one of those chocolate bunnies this morning and you peel off the gold foil or whatever color it is, and it's, you know, it looks substantive. It looks like something's there. But if you bite into it, you will find out it is hollow 
and it's the lowest grade chocolate known to man on top of it. So not only is it hollow, but the casing is like dark plastic is what it tastes like. But when you bite into that thing, you go, hey, I thought there was substance, but it's empty. It's hollow. That's what this word means. It can mean it's useless. It's meaningless. And he's saying that if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then your faith is a waste. That's what Paul's saying. These songs we sang, waste. The, the, the Bible we're reading about the New Testament about Jesus, it's useless. It's meaningless. The church you attend, waste of time. Because if Jesus isn't raised, hasn't been raised, then the message you believe and your faith are in vain. Not only that, but he says this, verse 15. Not only that, but we have found, if, if Jesus isn't raised, we are found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. So he's going back. If the dead aren't raised, Christ isn't raised. That means our message is false. We are misrepresenting God. What he's saying is we're a false witness. And the message that we received is false. Back at the beginning of the chapter, this is what he said. I delivered, verse 3, I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. I'm passing on the message I received, and this is it. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And so he says, this is the message that's passed on. So that message that Jesus died for our sins and that he was raised, uh, I'm misrepresenting him if Jesus isn't raised. Those apostles that first passed that on, the first apostles said, we saw him alive. They were living. We saw him alive. They're false. They're misrepresenting God. The, The very apostles who said he is alive and died for that lie. Some of them were hung, burned. However, they were killed, stoned. They saw him. And they testified to him, but if he wasn't raised, that message is false. They're false apostles. Paul says, I'm a false teacher, and they died for a lie. They went to their grave knowing that they had fabricated that they really saw Jesus. Gave their life for a lie. It's, 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 well, it's a stretch to imagine that. But that's what he said is at stake. It gets worse. It's not, it's not just that your faith is in vain. It's not just that I'm a false teacher, Paul says. I'm misrepresenting Christ. But he goes on, you're still in your sins, verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Your faith is worthless, is what he's saying, and you are in your sins sins. What does that mean? Well, he's already saying, you believed in Jesus to have your sins forgiven. So you realize you're a sinner. You needed your sins forgiven. You believed that Jesus died for your sins, that he was buried, and then he was raised for, his, for your sins, uh, to, to forgive your sins. But if he's not raised, you're not forgiven. You're still responsible for your sins. That, that, that's how serious he is. Someone asked me recently, uh, it's a great question, they said, well, is the, re- is the resurrection necessary for me to be forgiven? What if Jesus just died as a substitute? Isn't that enough? Could, couldn't I just have my sins forgiven by believing in Jesus died for my sins? But it's, it's a package deal. The death and resurrection of Jesus 
go together. You can't have one without the other. Obviously, you can't have a resurrection without a death. But you can't have his death mean anything for you if he isn't resurrected. This is what Romans says. He was delivered to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Justification means we're declared right with God. So he's saying, if you want to be right with God, you have to have your sins forgiven. He died to forgive your sins. And and he was raised that you might be declared right with God. See, the fact that Jesus is is raised means he defeated the power of sin. He broke the power of sin. He crushed the power of sin and death. And it demonstrates that his sacrifice was real. It took. He said he would be raised from the dead. He said that he was, he, was determ- he was declared the Lamb of God who died for our sins in our place. So he died, and the fact he rose shows that God the Father accepted the sacrifice. It shows that Jesus is who he said he was. If he said he would rise and he didn't rise, then why would, in the world would anybody believe that he died as a real substitute? He could have just died as a martyr. He could have just died because, man, he was saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And, uh, and there's political pressure against him, and so he died. Uh, but, but if he's not risen, then, then all that he said about why he came is questionable. So what, it, what he's saying here is that if Jesus did not rise, then you are still in your sins. That is, you believed Jesus forgave you, but he's not reliable. He's not a reliable sacrifice for you, and you are under the fair judgment of God. So you're not receiving forgiveness and mercy. You're still in your sins. That means you're still responsible for them. You don't have forgiveness for them. So he's saying, hey, it may just sound like, hey, people people aren't resurrected. Is that a big deal? Oh, it's a big deal. Because if people aren't resurrected, Jesus wasn't resurrected. If Jesus isn't resurrected, then our preaching is in vain. We are false teachers, and you aren't forgiven. You're still in your sins. This is what he goes on to say, verse 18. Those who have died already as Christians, they've perished. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep, which is a way of speaking of death because there's there's an awakening that comes at the resurrection. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They've perished. So what he's saying is, When grandma died and believed in Jesus and was hoping for forgiveness of sins, she perished like an unbeliever. When when your child died, perished. That there's no future hope. When your friend died, no future hope. That they they have perished in their sins. So the resurrection has to do with our past. We're forgiven. But the resurrection also has to do with our future that we do not perish forevermore. So what's the conclusion of all this stuff? Do you see what he's doing? He's playing, what if Jesus wasn't raised? Okay, let's consider the implications. Here's the final implication he has. Verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 19. If if in Christ we have no hope in this life only. Let me read that. If in Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. What he's saying here is if, if there's no future resurrection, there's no forgiveness of sins, there's no eternal life, that, we aren't, that one day our bodies won't come out 
of a grave and be reunited to our spirit so that we live eternally in a spiritual body. I can't describe what that is, but that's what the scripture calls it. We don't know what that is. It's like, it's like Jesus's resurrection body. The believer will experience that kind of existence forever. If we don't have that, he says, if there's no future and we're doing all this just for now, you know what he says? We are pitiful. We're to be pitied. There's no sincerity points. He doesn't say, well, you were sincere. You lived a sincere life. And that, that, that's respectable. He says, I feel sorry for you. It, it's pitiable. I, you show pity on someone that's weak and suffering and, and victimized. You, you sh- there's a pity and a compassion. It's pitiful if that's what you believe. As a matter of fact, over in, in uh, verse 32, later in the chapter, um, he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I mean, let's just go, go eat a bunny, let, a chocolate one. <clears throat> let's, that sounded terrible. Wow. He is getting kind of depressed. <laughs> just kill rabbits. If it's not true, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, just go eat a bunny. I mean, a chocolate bunny. just, that's it. See you next year. If there is no hope, he says, this is, this is pitiful. That, that we are, we're left really uh, de- depressed and we, we've lived for a lie. He actually said before that line about let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. He says, what do I have to gain if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? I think he's talking about animals and not like really tough guys. Dude's a beast. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying like animals that I risked my life. He said, why am I out here risking my life? And ultimately he'll die for his faith. Why am I risking all that if it's just like there's no future, there's no resurrection, there's no eternal life, there's no forgiveness of sins, there's no reconciliation to God, there's no heaven for eternity, there's no avoidance of condemnation in hell for eternity. If none of that's in play, if it's all just right now, then let's just party. Let's eat and drink and die. Because there's no hope. It's despairing. See, see, everything turns on the resurrection, Everything. That's what Paul is saying. There's only two possibilities. Jesus was raised from the dead or he was not. And he's saying, if he was not, forget it. Don't even do church. Don't play games. Don't preach false messages. Don't don't do any of that stuff. If he's not raised, uh, you know, time is ticking and there's nothing after this. uh, So just, just be done with it. But if he is raised... Oh, that changes everything. To, to kind of tweak a statement that C.S. Lewis made one time, we could say this. The resurrection is, if, if, it's, uh, if it didn't happen, then it's just not important. We don't need to be gathering. If, there's, if it's a false thing, then we don't need to be gathering. We don't need to be singing songs. You can find another reason to go buy a new dress and attend a party, okay? You can have ham for lunch some other occasion, okay? You don't have to, we don't have to do all this recognizing this day. So if, if it didn't occur, it's not important. If it did, it is ultimately important. It either has no meaning and is not important, or it is ultimately important. C.S. Lewis said, the one thing it can't be is moderately important. It cannot be sort of important. I sort of need to know about that. I sort of probably, I should learn a little bit about that resurrection thing. It's either no importance at all, blow it off, forget it, find a different philosophy to live your life by. That'd be my recommendation. Or if it's true, if it is true, 
then run to Jesus and give your whole life to him because your entire eternity is tied to that one man, that God-man who died for your sins and rose for the forgiveness of your sins and will return for you and give you a new body and join your spirit with your body and you will be with him for eternity. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. It can't just be a message that we're neutral. You can't be neutral on the resurrection. You can't be. It's true or it's false. They lied or they told the truth. It's meaningless and let's party or it's meaningful and let's party as well. Different kind of party perhaps, but we're going to party as well and celebrate for all eternity. Now, Paul doesn't leave it with that. He doesn't leave it where I'm leaving it right now. He doesn't say, so you decide and whatever. He goes on to affirm that, yes, it did happen. Verse 20. I'm going to read the next three verses and we'll be done after I comment on them. Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits, excuse me, of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is what he says. He says, we're not, we're not the most pitied people. We're, we're favored by God's grace. We've received God's grace. This is an enviable position to be in, to know our creator, to know our savior, to have purpose and meaning in this life, and to live for eternity with him. Now, he gives two pictures that I want to comment briefly, especially if you're new to the Bible. They probably sound a little strange. Bible is made up of two parts, an Old Testament, which is the story basically of the people of Israel that point forward to Christ, and then the New Testament, which is the story of Jesus, and then what happened after Jesus when all these churches started getting going, believers in Christ, uh, afterwards. So there's the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what he does here is he takes two pictures from the Old Testament. And they may be confusing to you when you first see them, but actually they're very simple and they're very powerful. He says this, first of all, Jesus was raised, he's the first fruits of the dead. What's the first fruits? Here's what happened. If you're in Israel, most likely you're a farmer. And at the end of the harvest, what what the believers did was they took the first crops, the first grain, uh, whatever the crop was, the first... Uh, olives or grapes for a wine harvest, whatever it is, they take the first crop, and then here's what you do. You take the very first ones, and you give them to God in worship. It's called first fruits. Here's my first fruits, and here's the significance of the first fruits. The first fruits symbolized there's more coming. The first fruit said, the locusts didn't eat the plants this year, we got a harvest. So the first fruits are, thank you, Lord, for the rain, thank you, Lord, for the crops, Thank you that the enemies didn't invade and take all our crops. Thank you that the locusts didn't eat our crops. We give you the first fruits because the first fruits are a guarantee that more is coming, that we're going to have a full harvest. This is the good, this is the first fruits. So he says, Jesus is the first fruits. Jesus gets up out of the grave. Jesus is alive, comes out of the empty tomb and is alive. The first fruits, the promise that there's more coming. And everyone who believes in him That's the harvest. If you believe in Jesus, as surely as he came up out of the grave, so will you. As surely as he lives eternally, so will you. He just uses this farming metaphor, this farming picture to make his point. Jesus is the first fruits. He is the the initial 
harvest, so to speak, and he's going to bring a whole crop behind him, everyone who believes in him. Here's the second picture, he says. The second picture is verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. So he says Jesus is the first, many more to come, everybody who believes. Here's the second Old Testament picture. We all deserve death because of Adam. Adam is the first guy uh, created. We're studying Genesis right now, and we're, we're about to come up. We just studied his creation, and we're about to study uh, what we read here, his sin. Um, but ne- if, if, you're, if you're a guest, we'd love to have you back. Next week, I'm going to talk about God and your job, and the next week, I'm going to talk about God and your marriage. And if you don't have a job or don't have a spouse, there'll be plenty of application in that as well. But that's, that's kind of the point. God in your job, God in your marriage. We're looking at the book of Genesis. That's what we're going to talk about in the next two weeks. But uh, here, what he's saying is that Adam sinned. He disobeyed God. He ate the fruit he wasn't supposed to eat. And then what happened is everyone born after Adam is born with a propensity to sin, is born with a, a nature to not obey God but to do our own thing. And that sin is why we deserve God's judgment. But he said, God sent Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, to reverse what Adam did. He sent Jesus to turn back what Adam did. He sent Jesus to fix, uh, redeem what Adam did through his rebellion. So what he says is, just as we died because of Adam, we're all going to have eternal life who believe in Jesus. He's saying he is the one who fixes what uh, Adam broke. He is the one who answers our Sins. He is the one that brings forgiveness because of what he did. He's the one who is resurrected from the dead. So as we celebrate uh, the resurrection today, we are celebrating not just a past event, but we are looking to our future. We're looking to eternal life. We're looking to that eternal harvest. We're looking to be part of that. We're looking to see God face to face and know that our sins have been forgiven because we believed in his Savior. We trusted Jesus with our lives. Our time here is brief. Ask anybody who's a little bit older, and they will tell you, I never thought it would go this fast. No one ever does. Life is very, very brief. And this matter of did he rise or did he not and what does it mean is of the utmost urgency. Folks from this church will never forget Easter 2013 because I said, and I hope it doesn't happen again, but I said just what I said, something like that. I said our time is short and everyone will die and just a few, it wasn't on cue, but a few seconds, not long after that, there was a scuffling that happened about right over here, about four rows back. And I saw a guy stand up, and I saw a guy fall over out of his chair having an apparent heart attack. You saw it too if you were here. And there was a clearing out. Uh, There was a dismissal of people. There was a call of 911. There was an ambulance that pulled right up here. And I walked down and got right next to the guy. There were some people gathered around him. Uh, I mean, literally, it's happening right now. I'm at the end of this sermon. It happened at the end of the sermon. I walk down, get down there, and this guy is on his back, looking up at the sky. He's a younger guy, 40-ish. He's not like really, really old to be having a heart attack, a young guy for a heart attack. And he's looking up at the sky, and he's saying, Jesus, Jesus. And I think he sees Jesus. I think, okay, this is it, man. We, we, we actually are going to have a guy die in the world. We've had people sleep plenty. But now we're about to have a guy die in the worship service. 
And he lived. That's why I can make a joke about it. But he, I think we're going to have a guy die in the worship service. And so we dismissed everybody. It was a panicky kind of a Sunday. So the ambulance comes and takes him. And I followed the ambulance. I walked, as soon as I walked into the emergency room, he was conscious and awake there. Uh, to which he said to me, I've always wanted to be in a sermon illustration, but not that illustration. <laughs> yeah. But there was fear and there was terror, and there was sobriety. How many times have, has a preacher said, you're going to die, believe in Jesus, and all of a sudden it's like, this is real. Someone's dying in the room. He was in the hospital, I don't know, three or four days. They never ultimately found out what was wrong. So it probably was a sermon illustration that was very real to all of us, and that's real for all of us. And so we must think about what the Bible, what God tells us through this passage, that Jesus did die for our sins, and that he was raised, and that we have two choices. We can disbelieve, we can kind of wait, which is ultimately disbelief and unbelief. We we can wait, disbelieve, and then we are responsible for our sins. We will stand before God, we will give an account for our wrongdoings every time we have thought, said, or acted opposed to what he requires in scripture, and we all have done that untold times, every one of us. We're all sinners. We can either pay for our sins in eternity in hell apart for him, uh, from him. Or we can believe that what he said is true and may not understand everything in the Bible. I don't know. I, can't, I don't. I can't explain everything in the Bible. But the clearest parts I do understand, and we do. The clearest parts is why Jesus came and what he did. We can believe that he was resurrected. He died for sins and he was resurrected to new life. And that we're going to turn from our sin and believe in him. And the scripture says that we will be forgiven We will receive new life and we will meet him face to face, completely innocent and completely declared righteous because of what Jesus did for us. It's not about what we do to be right with God. It's what he has done. Christianity is not about do, it's about done. You become a Christian not by doing, you become a Christian by realizing what he did, what he's already done for us and receiving that as a gift. It sounds too good to be true. It's grace. It's, it's what he has done for us. We turn and we believe in him and we receive everlasting life. And the direction of the text that we read this morning is all future-oriented, ultimately, that there'll come a day when we'll be with him forever. This is the second to last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, three, two verses. It says this. This is what it describes for the person who believes. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what the world is coming to for those who believe in Christ. Uh, An eternal presence in a new heavens and a new earth with Christ who will wipe away all our tears. There'll be no pain, no sorrow, no mourning, no crying anymore. For the things that are the result of sin, the sorrow, the loneliness, the abuse, the grief, the pain, everything we know in this world is gone because Jesus has righted all the wrongs and will return for us. So if you have never believed, I urge you today to believe. You have two choices. This is not moderately important. It did not happen, so it's very unimportant. Find a, find a way to live and enjoy your life. 
Uh, that's the message. Or it did happen. Those who proclaimed and gave their life for it, saying they saw it, him resurrected, it did happen. And then in that case, turn and believe and receive all this grace. And if you are a believer, then celebrate. Today, receive uh, afresh this good news that he died and rose for you. And your life may have problems, and you may be suffering now, and you may be enduring difficulty, but please know, brother or sister, this is the worst it will ever get. This is the worst suffering you will ever taste because there is coming a day when all of this will be done away with. And it will be all glory and all the presence of God and all goodness and righteousness and love and peace and unity and wholeness and integrity. There'll be no injustice, no suffering, uh, no hunger. Everyone in Christ, all of Christ's people will experience his glory. And all those who've refused, this is as good as we will ever have it. Those who have refused Jesus, this is as good as it will ever be because there is, a, there is a, an eternity apart from God under his judgment separated from the God that created us and loved us. So I urge you to turn today and to believe, whether you're a Christian or not, believe today and celebrate what he has done. Let's pray. Father, I pray for any of us here today who may not know this message or may have not believed in this message. I pray that you would help us all sense the urgency that you tell us in this Bible, that none of us would be relaxed about this and like it's not a big deal. We pray that we wouldn't hold you at arm's length. We pray that we wouldn't distance ourselves from this truth. We pray that you would give us faith, that you would give us the grace to believe. And for anyone who hasn't believed, I pray right now that they would turn and trust you. Turn and believe. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.